turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Change makers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. ADHD often goes undiagnosed in older adults, and very few resources focus on age 55 plus. According to today's guest, Dr. Kathleen Nadeau, there are steps adults with ADHD can take to reclaim control and lead calmer, happier, more productive lives. She joins us today to discuss how we can create a more ADHD-friendly lifestyle. Dr. Nadeau is founder and clinical director of the largest private ADHD specialty clinic in the United States and author of many books, including her newest, Still Distracted After All These Years, Help and Support for Older Adults with ADHD. Welcome, Dr. Nadeau. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for inviting me. So, Doctor, let's begin with the basics of ADHD. What is it, and what are the possible signs? That's a great question to begin with, and I think one of the reasons that so many older adults do not get diagnosed is that the diagnostic criteria that we're still using were developed to describe children. And we don't really have a good questionnaire or a good set of diagnostic criteria for older adults. But let me tell you what the older adults have told me their symptoms are. I interviewed 150 adults diagnosed with ADHD. The youngest was 60 years old. Uh, The oldest was 88 years old. And they told me that their number one challenge was not being able to accomplish things, not getting anything done during the day, not pursuing their long postponed dreams of what they might do in retirement, just having trouble getting started on tasks and staying on task and completing tasks. That was their number one ADHD challenge. Doctor, why do you think this is so prevalent in adults? Do you think it has a lot to do with the technology or or the fact that we are so overstimulated? Well, what you're really talking about is, is there an interaction between our brains and the environment we live in? And of course there is. And there, there are lots of things going on in our current environment where we're all living digitally and online, where we are constantly distracted and interrupted. But that being said, ADHD is something we're born with. Uh, it runs in families. And if you're an older adult thinking about uh, whether you might have ADHD, one of the first things you should think about is, if they are not children, grandchildren, nieces, nephews diagnosed with ADHD in your family, then it's probably not ADHD. It's so familial that if you're an adult with ADHD, you have a 50% chance of having a child with ADHD. Uh, And so it runs strongly in families. It's not Uh, just a reaction to the hustle and bustle and distractions of our current lifestyle and social environment. But it's also important to understand that the circumstances that we put ourselves in 
can make our ADHD better or can make it worse. And I think the digital world is clearly making it worse. If this is something that we're born with, which is actually very interesting to me, if it never presented earlier in our lives, is it possible that it'll just rear its ugly head as we get older just simply because we're aging? Or was it always presenting, but we just never noticed it? Well, again, you're asking me excellent questions, and I'm happy for the question. Uh, What we are now understanding is that while ADHD is always there in the background, that there are lots of factors in our life that can keep it from being evident when we're younger. Um, One of those factors is high IQ. If you're a really bright kid, even if you're distractible, even if you're not paying much attention in school, you'll probably be making good grades until you get much further along in education. So high IQ absolutely can mask ADHD, a very stable, secure home environment in which parents are orderly and organized is another mitigating factor. I remember one fellow that I diagnosed in middle age as having ADHD joked that he didn't have permission to have ADHD when he was a kid. And what he meant by that is his mother was a school teacher who had stayed home with him to keep him on track and focused. And by gosh, she did. And he told me that his ADHD really didn't become evident until he left home and left all that structure and reminders uh, his mother was providing and got to college, and then things began to fall apart. So our ADHD emerges when the stress level, the demands of our life are such that we can't compensate for them anymore. There are a lot of people that I know that are like me. You know, one of the things I've noticed as I'm getting older and I just attributed it to doing too many things at once, is that, as you were describing, sometimes I feel like I do a little bit of this, a little of that, and I don't get anything done. So I've become a master list maker. I have um, a list of what I need to do for the month, and then I chunk that down to the week and then the day. And I find that that's how I stay on task. It's by going through my list and crossing things off as I as I do the task. And a lot of people say that they feel the same way I do. So is this something that we should be considering? Oh, I think I think list making, uh, among other things, anything that we can do to create structure in our days and in our lives is very important for all of us, but especially when we have ADHD. But I'll tell you, um, so many people with ADHD talk to me saying, I make lists all the time. But often people with ADHD are so distractible or disorganized that I lose the list or I start a list in one place and then I start another list in the kitchen. In other words, it's difficult for them, even with systems in place, to be organized and systematic. And that's one of the hallmarks of living with ADHD. doesn't mean you can't develop systems, but it sure does mean that it's going to take a lot more effort and a lot more time for those habits to become really ingrained. So that's a wonderful distinguishing factor for people like me who sometimes wonder if I have something more serious going on. So you had mentioned that there are diagnostic tools for children, but what about adults? How do you diagnose this in an adult? Well, that's a very good question. We don't have any diagnostic tools yet for older adults. But at my clinic, we evaluate adults for ADHD all the time. And one of the questionnaires that we use focuses on what are called executive functioning skills. And in layman's terms, those are just basic daily life management skills. So we carefully question them and compare their responses to the responses of other adults. So these are normed questionnaires about how able are you to stay on time, to remain conscious of the passage of time. That's another thing people with ADHD struggle with, is they may 
carefully look at their tasks for today, and I'm doing this at 9, and I have a dentist appointment at 10.30, et cetera, et cetera. And then lose track of the passenger time so that they're still late for the dental appointment because they got caught up in something at their desk or they got a phone call. So it's sort of like people without ADHD, I would describe them as almost having a running set of information in the background that they can always refer to, whereas people with ADHD with the best of intentions um, may start off the day with that and get distracted and off track and um, unaware of how much time has gone on and still not get even halfway down that list. What is actually happening in the brain of a person with ADHD to cause all of the things that you just described? Well, the executive functioning skills are skills that one doctor, I think, aptly described as the getting your act together skills of planning and organizing and follow through and estimating time and, you know, making good long-term decisions. And all of that higher level cognition takes place in the prefrontal lobes of the brain. And what we know about people with ADHD is that they have lower dopamine levels in their prefrontal lobes, which means that their prefrontal lobes are underactive, the very part of our brain that helps us to keep our act together, sort of daily life management skills, that part of our brain is under-functioning. And that's what makes stimulant medication so helpful for many people is that the stimulant medication increases dopamine levels in the prefrontal lobes so that they're functioning on all cylinders. Is medication always required, or are there ways that we can create new neural pathways that may solve the problem? Well, it's medication is not always required. About 80% of people respond well to medication. 20% don't for a variety of reasons. There's, there's no way to develop, quote, new neural networks. It's not that that is the alternative to medication, but there are tons of alternatives to medication. And I always tell people that medication is not a magic pill. Um, Dr. Bill Dodson, a colleague of mine, coined the phrase that pills don't build skills. And by that, he means, yes, the pills can wake up your brain and make you more focused and alert, but you still need to develop the skills, like the skills you were mentioning, of making lists, of prioritizing, of figuring out in advance how long I'll need to spend on this and that. So there's a whole new profession that has developed over the last 25 years called executive functioning coaches, and we have a number of those at my clinic. And And their main goal in life is to help people with ADHD develop those very organizational skills that may come more naturally to someone like you. So if a person doesn't recognize the problem or attempt to manage it in some way, in some of the ways that you just described, what can happen in that person's life in addition to what you had said before about feeling like you can't get anything done or stay on task? How else can this impact someone's life, their career, their relationships? Well, I'd like very much to focus on how it impacts older adults and then maybe take a minute to talk about uh, younger adults who are still, uh, you know, full on in their career. Um, I think a lot of people imagine it doesn't matter if you have ADHD once you're retired. Why does it matter? You're not working. You don't have a lot going on. And I think it's really important to understand that it matters very much, that ADHD really impacts every single aspect of our lives. And the way older adults are impacted is they often have very unhealthy, disordered sleep habits because they don't have any structure. They don't have a bedtime. They don't have a wake-up time. And that really impacts our cognitive functioning when we don't get enough sleep or we don't get enough deep restorative sleep. And so ADHD impacts that. Um, just knowing what time it is, getting yourself into bed, 
calming your brain down so that you can go to sleep are often struggles for older adults with ADHD. The other thing that I really worry about with older adults is social isolation. Uh, It takes planning and organization and follow through to have a social life, to have social connections. And many people with ADHD become increasingly isolated after retirement. Um, If you think about it, work provides us with a built-in social world, and suddenly that goes away. And older adults, especially if they're living alone, and many of them are, of course, um, don't reach out, don't make plans, because that takes organization, that takes follow-through, and they become more and more isolated. And there have been many articles uh, lately um, just talking about how loneliness can literally kill us, that being very socially isolated is as dangerous to our health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day, according to some physicians. So the sleep problems, the social isolation, the other thing I worry about with older adults is their ADHD impacts their diet. Why does it impact their diet? Because eating a healthy diet requires planning and organization, those things that people with ADHD are not so good at. And so often I'll find that they're living on frozen dinners, they're snacking, they're living on cheese and crackers, they're not eating a healthy diet. And an unhealthy diet, just as poor sleep, impacts our cognitive functioning. Also, exercise. Exercise requires planning and self-discipline. I see a lot of older adults exercising less and less. And so all of these healthy daily habits fall by the wayside because they're in isolation, they have ADHD, and they don't have anyone around them to sort of keep them on track. A lot of the work that we do with older adults at my clinic is really coaching them on what we call the brain-healthy daily habits. Do you think then, from everything that you just described, it may not be the best idea for someone with ADHD to retire? Great question. I mean, one of the things that I often recommend to people is to consider working part-time in retirement because it gives them a place to go, Um, a time to be there, people to interact with when they get there, and a sense of purpose in life. I mean, there are plenty of people with ADHD that don't retire, um, but not all of us have that choice. Some of us are working in jobs where the retirement is required at a certain age, or we simply don't have the good health and energy to continue working. But I think part-time uh, employment during retirement is is a great option for providing some structure and support in your daily life. We talked about setting up procedures such as um, list making and and you know organizational strategies. But what about things like getting out in nature, meditation, yoga? Do any of those things help mitigate the symptoms that someone's experiencing? All of those do, and they are part of the brain-healthy daily habits that I write about in my book, Still Distracted After All These Years. I mean, the acronym that I developed, just it makes it easier to remember, is MEND. These MEND your cognitive functioning. And the M in the word MEND is, stands for meditation. And it doesn't have to be only meditation. It's any regular stress management practice. It can be meditation, it can be yoga, it can be Tai Chi, it can be deep breathing exercises, anything that's going to help our brains calm down and be better focused. The E in MENS stands for exercise, and the N in MENS stands for nature, One of the S's in that word stands for social interaction. And I tell people, let's talk about habit stacking. If you exercise outside with a friend, you have 
expose yourself to the natural world, you're getting good exercise, and you're getting social connections all at the same time, habit stacking. So it's not as if we have to spend our entire day frantically following these healthy habits, but exposure to nature is so elemental. It's it's as if we have, as a society, developed brain unhealthy daily habits of staying inside, of not exercising, of being uh, in isolation. Even people that are working, many of them are working in isolation from home, which is not good for our mental health or our brains if we do too much of it. And Dr. What you just described, I mean, we've been talking about ADHD and brain health, but it's just a great recommendation for physical health, just overall general well-being. Absolutely. Absolutely. And one of the things that research is showing us now is that cognitive decline, and I'm not talking about ADHD, but just overall cognitive decline for all of us is hugely impacted by unhealthy daily habits. But um, recent research shows that we can actually reverse that process, that we can significantly improve our cognitive functioning as older adults if we follow these brain-healthy daily habits. Doctor, is is ADHD ever confused with dementia in older adults? Um, Absolutely, yes, and I'm so glad you asked me that. One of the reasons I wrote Still Distracted after all these years is I really want it to be a wake-up call to the medical community, not just to the general public. I hope people will buy this book and take it to their neurologist, to their psychiatrist. Um, A recent study was done of memory clinics around the United States. Now, memory memory problems is a very common issue for people with ADHD. But if you're an older adult with undiagnosed ADHD and you go to a memory clinic, Most often, they're not even going to consider the possibility that you have ADHD and you may be incorrectly diagnosed with early signs of dementia when it may be a very treatable disorder. And what's important for your listeners to understand is ADHD does respond to stimulant medication. There is no medication that clearly improves cognitive functioning if it's dementia. So it's really important to make that distinction, and doctors are not trained to even think about ADHD in older adults. Let me throw an important and amazing statistic at you that I learned in my research, and that is in seven years, there will be more people in the United States over the age of 65 than people in the United States under the age of 18. And if you think about it, that means that there are going to be many more adults and older adults with ADHD than kids and teens. And yet most professionals still are prone to think of it as largely a disorder of childhood. Once again, that book is still distracted after all these years help and support for older adults with ADHD. Dr. Nadeau, where can our listeners go to get more information about you and your work? My website is chesapeakeadv.com. We are in Maryland near the Chesapeake Bay, so we named our clinic chesapeakeadv.com. Doctor, in about 30 seconds or less, what is the takeaway? What would you like to leave our listeners with? I would like to leave your listeners with the idea that it's really important if you think you may have ADHD to get a diagnosis and begin to make changes in your life. Every single adult that I interviewed that went through that process said it was one of the best decisions they ever made. It really can improve your mood. Um, your daily functioning, just the general quality of life as an older adult to get the diagnosis and then follow my recommendations about how to improve your daily functioning. Dr. Nadeau, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for inviting me. I enjoyed it. 
This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Do you feel lost on your journey to health and happiness? Then let us guide you on your path, personalized actions towards health. Your path is a series of choices you act on every day. We guide you on a personalized journey of dietary, exercise, genetic, supplement, and lifestyle choices that lead you to optimal health and happiness. Often taking the road less traveled leads to liberation. Your path is personal. Your journey, like you, is unique. Take action today. Head to bestpathforme.com. Again, that's bestpathforme.com. You've put your heart and soul into writing a book. So, how do you reach your potential readers? Introducing the Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life book club, created for books that change lives. A book featured gets recognized. For more information, visit cyacyl.com slash book club. Do you get heart palpitations, cold or sweaty hands, nausea, shortness of breath, or have trouble sleeping? Do you have numbness or tingling in your hands or feet? You're not necessarily having a heart attack. You may have an anxiety disorder. Hi, I am Gail Gruenberg, CPOCD, Chief Executive Organizer of Let's Get Organized, an award-winning professional organizing company serving clients who live with chronic disorganization. Anxiety disorders are more prevalent than we know. According to the American Psychiatric Association, approximately 30% of adults in the U.S. live with some form of an anxiety disorder, like generalized anxiety disorder, phobias, PTSD, panic disorder, or OCD. Having some anxiety and stress are normal. Modern life can be challenging. A little anxiety can focus your attention on a task or alert you to possible danger. However, if you have an anxiety disorder, anxiety is pervasive and interferes with your ability to function on a daily basis. It can affect family relationships, school performance, social functioning, and career success. Its cause can be chemical, hereditary, or environmental, such as experiencing a trauma. Working with a mental health practitioner and a professional organizer trained in techniques to accommodate anxiety disorders can create soothing internal and external environments conducive to mitigating the physical, psychological, and social effects of anxiety. I'm Gail Gruenberg with Let's Get Organized. Working with you on-site or virtually, we are your brain's personal trainer for getting organized. If you're ready to train your brain to get organized, call us at 2 or visit our website at lgorganized.com. Recently, I was flipping through a toy catalog, shopping for a gift for a French child, when I stumbled upon an item that had brought hours of enjoyment to my children. It's a square box that has different shapes cut out into each side with matching pieces. The goal of the toy is for children to fit each piece into its corresponding hole, thus learning to recognize shapes and how to fit like things together. My boys spent hours placing the various shapes into their respective holes. Most times, the pieces fit together with ease, but on occasion, they would work tirelessly trying to make the wrong piece fit into the wrong hole, an oval in a circle, a square in a triangle, a rectangle in a square. As I reminisced about them sitting on the floor working at this task, I began to think about how this activity mimics what we do throughout our life, work to make the pieces fit. Hi, this is Joan Herman, here with a lesson learned while earning my PhD in life. Sometimes our choices fit perfectly, but other times, no matter how much energy we expend, they just don't fit. How many times have you been in a friendship or romance that didn't work out? In most situations when the breakup occurred, anger, heartbreak, and disappointment soon followed, then blame. Someone must be at fault. Someone was wrong. You tried so hard, so why couldn't it survive? Instead of being consumed with anger and resentment, did you ever stop and think that maybe, just maybe, it was simply a wrong fit and that no one is to blame? Like the pieces in the toy, each of us has an individual design derived from life experiences. We are each as unique as a circle, square, triangle, or octagon. When we make the right match, everything fits perfectly. But when we have the wrong pieces, it doesn't work, no matter how hard we push or on what angle. It would be ridiculous to say something is wrong with the circle because it didn't fit in the square. We recognize the shapes as being different, so why do we make those claims about people? Why do we assign blame to a person and then spend the rest of our life being angry and resentful, thinking about what could have been? Perhaps a new perspective would be to view each of us as the pieces of the toy, unique with our own characteristics, perfect in our design, but not always a fit. 
no matter how hard we try to squeeze it together and how much we want it. Perhaps looking at life experiences in this way may make it easier to let go and stop assigning blame. It may enable us to forgive and move forward. So the next time you experience the loss of a valued relationship, rather than being consumed with anger and bitterness, just release it. Try to view yourself and the other person as shapes, different from each other, but with their own purpose, beauty, and value. Perfect in their individuality, but they just don't fit. Thanks for spending these minutes with me. For more information and empowering tools, visit joanherman.com. This is WNYM, Hackensack, New Jersey, New York City. to Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. Epilepsy is one of the most common neurological disorders in the world. It's characterized by recurrent seizures that impact approximately 3.4 million in the United States alone. Today's guest pro football Hall of Famer Alan Fanica has been described as the best guard in the history of the Pittsburgh Steelers, but his career nearly ended before it even began. Alan's here today to share the story of how epilepsy impacted his life. Alan is a former professional football player and 2021 Pro Football Hall of Fame inductee. In addition to coaching, he works to empower and inspire others who face epilepsy. Welcome, Alan. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, John. So, Alan, I, I want to start off by sharing a little bit about your story. What was it that happened to you on Christmas Eve in 1991? Well, that was the night I had my first seizure, um, I was, uh, to set the scene, I was at my uh, great-grandparents' farm uh, out in the country in uh, Texas and was there for the big family Christmas, and I had a seizure that night, and and it took the form of uh, just really a a bad nightmare is kind of what it felt like. I ran around the house kind of crying and screaming. Uh, Nobody knew what was wrong with me, and nobody thought anything about it being a seizure. Um, You know, then we wake up, and it's Christmas morning, and you know, I'm a kid. I'm ready to open up presents. And, you know, everybody's a little bit concerned about what happened during the night. Uh, so, you know, that's definitely prompted us to uh, seek uh, medical help and uh, to go see doctors and, and start to taking the test and uh, eventually figured out that it was epilepsy that I had. Alan, before that occurrence, looking back now, were there any signs? Had anything happened prior to that? There, there were no signs. Um uh, they, they doctors were able to point to uh, a, a part of my brain that, uh, that gives me my epilepsy, uh, and it uh, comes from a, a hard knock of uh, uh, from when I was much younger. Uh, I had a couple of insta- instances of uh, knocking my head when I was basically just playing around with kids, playing too rough um, with, uh, with cousins and stuff, uh, or playing basketball that uh, it, it comes from. So you're an athlete, and, and with what you just described, was that something that you were concerned about throughout your career? Not throughout my career, but definitely, you know, in the beginning. You know, this is uh, 1991. This is before the Internet and asking your phone to answer questions for you. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's no readily uh, available answers. So, you know, we get the diagnosis that it is epilepsy, and we're preparing to go visit with the doctor with my family and myself and you know we've got this long laundry list of, of questions to, to ask and you know once you get through all the basic you know how's this going to affect my life then we got to you know football and basketball and sports and about all these other things um and you know the doctor was was very forthright and was like no keep chasing your dreams keep doing it uh, there's no reason that you can't it, it won't affect uh you and, uh, you know, I, I didn't ask twice. I got the answer I, I wanted uh, and, uh, and needed. And uh, I took it and ran. And I really just took it as a, a, a thing to, to, to keep chasing my dreams and not to, not to let anything stop me. Is that the best advice that you would offer to someone listening right now? Oh, definitely. Um, you know, I often tell people, you know, to, you know, the way I feel about it and, you know, I, I hope everybody can feel like that or eventually find a way to feel like that is that, that epilepsy is part of us, but it does not define us. It is uh, just a small part of who we are. There are so many more things about us as individuals that make us who we are that uh, we have to be more proud of and more cognizant of than, than just the epilepsy part. 
How were you able to manage it from the time you got the diagnosis? What was the treatment? You know, the treatment was, was finding the, the right medication and uh, the right uh, dosing. Um, and, you know, uh, it, it took some time going through high school. It took some time to find that right medication. You know, and if your body is changing and growing, uh, you're, you're adjusting uh, and, and playing with all this medicine until you finally get to the right regimen that, that's good for you. And, uh, you know, that, that, that was my path. But, you know, my daughter also has epilepsy, uh, and her path is 100% different than my path. And everybody's path is different. Uh, and that's kind of what the Steps Towards Zero is about, is just trying to, to get everybody engaged uh, and help educate, inspire, and activate the community so that we can uh, all move forward and find find our, our steps towards zero, what our goal of zero uh, can mean to us. So you say that one of your goals is to educate others. We've heard about epilepsy, but I don't think many people really know what it is. So what do you think are some of the biggest misconceptions around epilepsy? You know, I think the biggest misconception is what Hollywood shows us epilepsy is which is the, the scary convulsing on the floor uh, situation, uh, which is very true for a, a lot of people with epilepsy, but not everybody. And even the people who have that form of epilepsy, uh, that's not the only thing they are. It's just something that they have to deal with. Um, and even though that it, it can be scary if you don't know what's going on, if you uh, educate yourself a little bit, know a little bit more, um, you'd be more prepared to help. Uh, you wouldn't be as scared of the situation and you would know a little bit more about what's going on with the person who's having the seizure. Yeah, because education is the key to destigmatize epilepsy or any type of a disorder that we're afraid of. Correct, correct. And that's really that's really a big part of this movement is to, to destigmatize it, uh, to kind of get from behind it and get out in front of it. Um, you know, don't don't hide from it. And the more 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 I can talk about it and the more people can hear my story, you know, maybe I can help empower somebody to step out from behind it uh, and, and own it and not be so concerned about what other people think uh, and take a little little control of, of the situation. And there's so many people out there, especially young people with epilepsy. Um, you know, you're just trying to be a teenager or you're trying to play in your youth sports team and, you know, you're just trying to be normal, right? So many kids fight and struggle just to be normal without dealing with anything else. Now you have epilepsy. Yeah. Now you get this really... Uh, adult problem that you have to deal with and take very seriously that your friends and peers don't have to. Uh, so it, it's very, uh, I think it feels very heavy, especially on, on the young who have uh, epilepsy. And, and just to, to share with them and tell stories and tell some of my funny stories. Uh, you know, I, I, I had a seizure one morning in high school uh, after my mom had already went to work and I walked to school in my pajamas one morning and I lived about a mile from my high school uh, it didn't really snap out of it till I got to school. And, um, you know, that's it happened to me. And to tell that story and to let a kid know that, that they're not alone in whatever situation that they're afraid of or something that did happen to them, that they're not alone, um, it makes me feel better, and it's all the more reason for me to talk about it. Alan, what does a seizure feel like, what, what you just described to us? Did you know what was happening at the time? You know, for everybody, it's different. For everybody, it's different. Um uh, a lot of times for me, uh, I feel uh, like I am uh, late uh, and I have to just I'm, I have to rush somewhere. Um, and uh, that, that's that's kind of the form mine takes when uh, when I'm awake. So that's kind of why I, why I rushed off to school. I, I probably felt like I was late. Uh, sometimes I do. Sometimes I don't know what's going on. Um, there's been times when I've had one and, and, and had no idea. And then uh, all of a sudden, you know. Uh, my loved ones are around me when I kind of snap out of it. So mm-hmm. uh, it takes all forms, and, and everyone's path is, is completely different. And, and and really that's what the Steps Towards Zero is about, is to, to get all these people on all these different paths to realize that, that we, can, we can find a better path, a better way, uh, how to talk to your doctors, how to join the conversation uh, at StepsTowardsZero.com to let everybody know that, that you're not alone. Uh, and that there are ways to, to get better and to always strive and always try and keep not, not settling for what the status quo is for you. Did you ever have someone, because of his or her fear or misunderstanding, put up a roadblock for you? Did you ever have a coach who said you shouldn't play or anything like that? And if you did, how did you overcome those challenges? 
I never had any coach uh, put up uh, anything like that, but I but I've had plenty of uh, interactions, uh, you know, especially in my early years in high school. Um, you know, uh, all of a sudden a friend's not so friendly anymore; they're a little bit distant, or uh, you know, people kind of question what you're doing. Are you are you are you able to do that? Um, and, you know, really from from that that foundation that I got so early on from my my parents and my my family. Uh, and my doctors and my, my entire support group, uh, just really owning it and being out in front of it. Um, I just never hid behind it. I was a little bit bullheaded, um, but I just, you know, I, I always kind of, I always kind of flipped the script. And you know, my daughter has epilepsy too, and I, I try to tell, remind her of that as well. Is you know, if people know you're okay, then what are you worried about? Like, you know, if I can flip the script and say I'm doing good, I, I answered your questions, I'm good. Anything else you want to ask about it? Uh, it, it kind of makes them weirdly at ease with it. Like, if he's okay with it and he's asking me if I'm okay, maybe I'm worried about nothing. Um, it worked for me, and uh, so I advocate for that. And it's just kind of really uh, owning it a little bit. It's stepping on the other side of the stigma and stepping out in front of it instead of hiding behind it. Alan, how can our listeners get involved with the Steps Toward Zero program? You can go to stepstowardszero.com movement that was launched by SK Life Science. It's designed to educate, inspire, and activate us. And the more, the more we know, the, the better we are. Um, we should all be in pursuit of zero seizures. Zero seizures is recognized as the optimal treatment for people with epilepsy. So if you go in there, you can find your guide um, to talk with your doctors, how to talk about your current medication, your long-term plan, what are your life goals, all these all these questions, there's all these things that to help you on the website. You can join the conversation. Uh, know that you're not alone. Uh, there's so much information on there. Uh, but the biggest for me is, is to activate. I, I love that word, activate. Uh, and it's really what got me behind this cause. Let, let's activate as a community. Um, let's educate. Let's empower. Let, let's, let's find new ways to find our steps towards zero uh, and find out what that means for each of us so we can better be, uh, be ourselves. And, Alan, in our final moments, in about 30 seconds or less, what's the takeaway? The takeaway is to, uh, to empower, uh, to, to get out there and uh, do, what's, do what's necessary. Be there for yourself. Don't let epilepsy define you. Uh, let you define yourself. Epilepsy is only a small part of you. Uh, I also want to mention, uh, if you go to your social media and you hashtag steps towards zero and share what your zero means to you, SK Life Science is going to donate $1 to the Epilepsy Foundation. So get out there and share your story, empower others by sharing your stories, and look for other people's stories to help empower you. Alan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. When you're having a conversation in relationship and it's somewhat controversial, you probably want to be heard and be right. Quite often, that's what we want. And so we're maybe a little defensive, but is that right? Or do we want a result? The result being we'd like to get along. Hi, I'm Lindsay Levinson, Quality for Life Coaching. And they are two different things, getting along versus being heard and being right. See, because being heard and right is our defense, then that connects to our ego. But ego's not really going to get you that far. If you want a result, then you're going to want to work with humility and truth. So if you've got a difference of opinion, I mean, for me, I'll quickly look for a reason to say I'm sorry. And it has to be true. If I don't know what I've done yet, then I will say, I'm sorry you're hurting. I've done something wrong here because you're hurting. But let's talk further so we can figure this out. And you don't want to talk at someone by saying you this and you that because people just shut their ears. You want to use words like we and use words like experience. I'm having this experience. I know your experience is different. There isn't a right or wrong. There's just different experiences going on here. So we just need to talk it through and land somewhere that feels really good for both of us. So you want to do a lot of that non-heated conversation so that you can both feel good, but nobody is charging at another person. It's not being heard and right. It's just working toward the positive result. Lindsay Levinson, qualityforlifecoaching.com. Look me up. I'd love to talk to you, help you in any way I might be able to. Hello, doctor. Hi, business owner. Hey there, freelancer. Has COVID affected your receivables? Of course it has. And I'm sure you could probably use some professional help. 
A true test in choosing a top-notch debt collection agency is their recovery rate and the amount of money collected by the agency for their clients. That's a great return on investment. Also important today are the five-star Google reviews about their personnel and services. Wouldn't you hire a collection agency with 830-plus national reviews, over 70% of which are from the debtors that the agency was able to collect funds from? That's great diplomacy. May I suggest Kinnam, the diplomatic debt recovery firm? Our name comes from Kin Family, Num Numbers, Family Before Numbers, People Before Profits. This is Vito Mazza. Reach me at 800 800- 850-5110. Welcome back to Conversations with Joan. According to a recent report from the U.S. Government Accountability Office, 48% of Americans age 55 and older have no money in either an IRA or 401k style account, and 29% have no pension or retirement savings accounts. Financial security in retirement requires that you will be able to live off your savings, investments, and Social Security benefits. But how many Americans are concerned that these retirement assets will not sufficiently cover their living expenses? And how can they bridge this retirement savings gap? Joining me today to discuss this growing problem and to offer actionable advice is award-winning personal finance journalist Jean Chatsky. Jean is a financial editor of NBC's Today Show and host of the podcast Her Money. Her new book is Women with Money. Welcome, Jean. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So, Jean, let's start off by talking about this report. What did the report find regarding the retirement savings gap? So the folks at AARP conducted a survey and found about 60% of people believe they have a retirement savings gap. And just to define that, it basically means that when you combine your Social Security with your investments and your savings, you're not going to have enough to sustain the life that you want to live in retirement. More women feel that they've got a gap than men. But either way you look at it, it's a very large number, and it means we need to take some steps to start closing that gap. So people recognize the fact that they had a gap. Were they concerned about this? Oh, completely concerned. Um, About half of all men are very worried about this, and, and significantly more women. Jean, why do you believe so many people are not financially prepared for retirement? Well, if you ask them they'll tell you that they just don't have enough money to save based on the money they earn, that unexpected expenses crop up and get in their way. But if you look historically at what's been going on, you know, over the last 25 years, we've transitioned from a system where many, many people had pensions to a system where we've got 401ks, we've got IRAs. We are responsible for saving for and investing for retirement ourselves. And with the number of people now who are working for themselves, who are freelancing, a lot of people don't have those work-based retirement plans. So they're at a loss to get started. So because we are responsible for our own financial health, what do you believe are some of the biggest mistakes we may make along the way? Again, we say the biggest mistakes that we make, according to this research, is not starting soon enough. The best day to start is today. And the way to do it is with automatic contributions into a retirement savings account. If you've got a 401k at work and you're not maxing out, you want to get yourself to the point where you are maxing out. If you don't have a 401k, then you want to open an IRA or a Roth IRA or a SEP IRA and start funding it every single month with automatic contributions. Because if you pay yourself first in this way, you're not going to spend that money and it will have an opportunity to grow for your retirement. And I think a lot of it is a mindset as well. I'm the product of depression babies and my parents had a very different philosophy about money and saving. Do you think a lot of this is also because so many live outside of their means? Absolutely. I think we have gotten to the point where bending money is way too easy to do. And all of the technological innovations, Venmo, credit, debit, Amazon, and one-click ordering, they've all made it very, very easy to spend. My philosophy has always been save first. 
you know, make sure that you're checking off that box that you've got emergency savings, that you've got long-term savings. And then whatever's left, you can choose how to allocate that for your wants and for your needs. I think I'm a dinosaur, Jean, because I actually like the feel of money in my hands. I like to know what's going in and going out. And, and as you said, when it's also digital, it's just too easy to let it go yeah, out. It, it is. And there's a lot of research on this that shows that we spend much more quickly with credit and with debit and with Venmo than we do with cash. So if as adults, we're having our own issues financially, what then should we be doing to get our kids ready to get them better prepared? Well, we should be having our kids save 10 to 15% of what it, whatever it is they're bringing in. Um, from the time that they're young until the time that they grow up, my, my kids are just out of college and, and they know this is what they have to do from the start of their working career all the way to the end of it. But it's also not too late to help ourselves. Jean, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing this advice. I mean, retirement really can be the best time of our life with just a little bit of planning. So thank you. My pleasure. You've put your heart and soul into writing a book. So, how do you reach your potential readers? Introducing the Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life book club, created for books that change lives. A book featured gets recognized. For more information, visit cyacyl.com slash book club. I hope you found the show informative. At Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided is the opinion of our guest and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on our site, listen to past shows on demand, read the digital magazine, sign up for our mailing list, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Maximilian Communications.